0: Welcome back. I'm
1: here again with David Morehouse. Dave, welcome hey, back. Sean. All right, man. So we're still talking about Peru, right? That's right. <laughs> the last episode, I was mentioning a place where we went that was up above where the condors were flying. The name of that was Coque Quirano, Quiro. Yeah, something like it's C H O Q U E Q U I R A O. And it was 9,840 feet above sea level. And it's near this village of Chachora. Okay, And that's where that place was. It's still not completely excavated, according to what I'm looking at. But it's a place now that's kind of rivaling Machu Picchu in its size and the intricacy of it. And it's considered as one of the last strongholds for the Incas against the Spaniards. So that's where we went and that's the name of it. And that was its height, but look it up and you'll understand the terrain and how they positioned this and why it was such a difficult thing to get people up there, but it's a beautiful structure and well worth the trip. But I certainly would not go there and not go to Machu Picchu. So just to continue this theme, about taking a group of remote viewers to Peru. As we were doing this, kind of what we were wanting to do, the mission was kind of redefining itself, right? The more information we were producing, the more intrigued our guide, who was Jorge Ruiz Delgado became. I think the more enamored he became of remote viewers and of remote viewing and As I said in our last episode, he recognized this as a very powerful tool, not something he was going to get into, but certainly something that he wanted to be around and wanted to learn more about and certainly wanted to connect with remote viewers because he wanted that perspective that viewers could bring to the table on this. So for those who are just looking at this episode, we were talking about in Peru, you have all these amazing sites, hundreds and hundreds of them, and they're very old. Some of them 1,000 years BCE and older, but you have the archaeological perspective or the old archaeological perspective, which is so easily wrong and proven wrong these days, but still, if that's what you studied and what you got your degree in, it seems to be what you parrot. it. And then you you learn to defend it vehemently, right? You have the shamanic perspective or the people's perspective, the local people's perspective. And then you have what remote viewers were doing there, what their perspective Mm -hmm. of it was. And so how we were exercising this tool, kind of trying to find our way with it in 2004. And perhaps we got... A lot better with it in 2005. But in 2004, we're really kind of feeling our way along as to how best to use this and how best to experience this as a, a large group of remote viewers in the country of peru seeing all these different sites. And as I said, Jorge started off with a typical kind of a tourist itinerary, albeit you have to hunt really hard to find one that's not a spiritual place. And he altered that because of what he saw viewers being capable of doing, because we wanted to put viewers on the ground and let them experience the site, either by just moving intuitively and their intent out and sensing their way through the site, or just go find a spot on the ground and sit down and connect with the site and connect with the site's history. because. We had focus questions that we gave them: Who built the site? Why did they build the site? What was the site ultimately used for? What significant happened at the site? What happened to the people that were at the site? Where did they go? Why was the site abandoned? Things like that. Typically, for every target, and as an extended remote viewer, you will have three to four focus questions. And yeah, in this particular modification of the protocol, clearly everybody's front loaded. We're in Peru. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're walking up to a site. (laughs) Nothing's being done in the blind. There was no way to do that. We couldn't be at the hotel, you know, remote view one or two targets and then go out to see them because we were sometimes going to six and eight things a day. And some days more than that. So we're moving, we're constantly in the process of moving. So the best way to approach this and get the most out of it, I felt was for us to work the focus questions at every target site when we got there. So we would get there, we would get an orientation, kind of do a time check for everybody. You get 90 minutes, walk around the site, sense it, go to a place, sit down. And then we would reconnect back at the designated location, people have 30 minutes, they would prepare summaries and sketches, et cetera. And then we would talk, we would just open it up, who would like to share their findings. And I told you the story, you know, in the first episode, the first time it was like four people because people are afraid with, well, what are we doing? And as soon as Jorge jumped in and essentially paraphrased, oh my God, you gave me a whole new lens with which to see the country I grew up in. And gave great validation to a lot of what I know and even unraveled some secrets that you should never know, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he changed things around him and, and he understood the power of it at that. So in 2005, when we came back, we saw a lot of the things for the second time. Some students came back a second time, but there were a lot of new students as well that came back things that we saw that that viewers didn't get much out of but did get something out of were things like the floating reed islands on lake titicaca mostly you know when you look at that you motor out in a boat it's very touristy you're buying tickets you go out there you get off the reed island you realize you're floating on something people are engineers or people that understand construction and that kind of stuff start looking around and like, oh, okay, because it's made entirely out of reeds. And the reeds are, they're a kind of a spongiform reed, so they have a lot of air in them. And until the bacteria breaks them down, they float, and they're very buoyant. And these islands have entire villages on you know, a, a thousand families on some of them, some of them smaller, you know, it, but they're amazing. But when you get on there, that's about what you know. The amazing thing is to see is how they're constantly putting more reeds down. That's a daily occurrence to keep putting reeds that so you can walk on. Is pushing it down to the bottom, and it just goes like that. And it's probably the island's about six feet thick. But the things that we discussed as remote viewers, and, and we discussed them with Jorge because Jorge didn't have a lot to say about the place other than just to talk about the people and how curious it was and how warm and welcoming they were, but several of the the viewers had been warriors. And so we were kind of like, you don't come out here to live for convenience. Nobody wants to live on their fishing boat, you know? So those people were out there because something on the land forced them out there. Which kind of contributed to some of the other understandings that people would come up with about this place. They've been out there, according to legend, long before the Spanish conquistadors came. So that was not the driving force that put them out there. There was something else, war or interference by something, or who knows, some sort of tyranny that was raging through the area or some other kind of influence. But they went to a place that they felt was safe. And that's why the civilization is there today. And they will never vary from that now. They're never going to come back onto the land and Mm -hmm. live in a house. They live on the Reed Islands because more than a thousand years ago, they were chased there or taken there or decided to go to that place. So it's a very, very interesting place, this sacred land. and It's got some scary places in it. One of the places that we went first year and the second year that we were there, was uh, Saxe Woman. This is the one that was supposed to be built by, by the Kilkat people, preceded the Incas, And this one is estimated to be 1000 BCE. And when you listen to the archaeological perspective, and even the current day interpretations of what are there from a tourist perspective, the interpretation that they're presenting to people that are coming there to walk around there is that this is kind of a festival place. And it's like the Incan Festival of the Sun and all that kind of stuff happens there. And they don't talk about what could have been or what was. They're selling an entirely different story there. I asked Jorge, without getting into a lot of detail, I said, do you really think that this was like some festival place? I mean, does this look to you like the layout of like a carnival grounds or like people came to enjoy themselves? He goes, no. (laughs) So when we did the protocol, when we got there, we walked, you know, everyone came, we all walked as a group out in front of this massive structure. And if you look at this structure, if you've ever been in the military or trained in the military, you look at the structure and immediately see a extremely well-built defensive structure that would be near impossible to flank and a head-on attack, a deliberate attack into it without some sort of engineering vehicles to get you up to where you could get up one level. Even if you did, even if, if you overcome the first obstacle, which is 25, 30 feet of walls, if you get mm-hmm. up over that without being killed, you step right back into the same thing. You're right back into a kill zone again. And now you've got to get back up over another 20-foot wall with the same kinds of things. It's offset at angles. So where defenders can be in position with rocks or whatever they want to throw at you, arrows, lances, whatever they have. And if as you close on this thing, you are now in the crossfire. You are canalized. You are going to be pushed into a corner and they can just bombard you until you are no more. And whatever does get to the top, like I said, you'd have to defeat what was at the top. And if you did overwhelm them, there's more waiting and you're right back in another kill zone. So the viewers went out, did what they were asked to do and then came back and shared their perceptions of this place. And I'm not trying to just say that what they were saying chores up the interpretation I just shared with you. But mm-hmm. pretty much that's what came back, which was people understood this to be a fortress and people understood it to be a fortress that was not a fortress being built to protect against Spanish incursions into the area that there was actually the interpretations that the viewers came up with is that it was actually, for lack of a better term, a tyrant presence that existed there. And this was that tyrant's defensive position or that dictator or that king or evil king, whatever you want to call it, right? But that it was a negative source that was there built in in it. The art thing is built out of this black granite. So it's really intimidating looking especially after its rain. But here is the other thing that's unique about it. The, the stones that are used to create this fortress
2: are massive. 40-ton, 60-ton stones of solid black granite. Or something very akin to that, like some
1: really heavy volcanic stone as well, dense, which is quarried a tremendous distance away. And the stones are huge and they are not cut evenly, meaning they're not like your typical construct of a stone. They're not cut in blocks and every block the same size they're cut as stones in unique at arcs and angles and right. It it is, you cannot fathom how somebody could, could cut a stone like that. How do you cut a 60 ton stone that way and then find seven or eight, 20, 30, 40 and 50 ton stones to fit it on every conceivable external angle in such a perfect way to match the slants, the curves, the, you know, the, all of it mm-hmm. in such a way that on the surface, you cannot put a credit card through it. You cannot stick a credit card or even a playing card or a knife blade in between those two stones. You cannot, if you go, you just go along and you can't find a place where you can. It's not that the close fit is a fluke. It's that the close fit is by design. It looks like they were cut by lasers and they're cut by lasers with no specific pattern that current human engineering would ever conceive of. They were cut that way. It seems... Because it lended some degree of stability to it. Just Mm -hmm. the angle and the slope and the, the lack of slide. You're in an area that has a great deal of lateral torque from occasional earthquakes. And the positioning of the stones and how the stones are cut, it stabilizes the structure of these walls far more than a wall that we would build today made out of concrete block stacked up and backfilled and rebar and all that kind of stuff. Or even the places where you've seen most of the places around the world, Italy, the Himalayas, anywhere else where a big earthquake comes along and it all comes tumbling down. These are built in a way where it's like nothing can pick up the harmonic in the structure. That's why it was cut that way. Now, either the Incans were extraordinarily brilliant and advanced engineers who understood harmonics in structures or there was something else that was there teaching them and helping them do that that's one aspect of it so Another it was aspect, designed
0: in a way such that there was kind of an internal dampening
1: of any yeah dominant harmonic or resonance right the earth itself could not pass a dominant harmonic or resonance to cause it because all the offsetting angles stopped it It couldn't ever get a pattern, right? The waveform couldn't go through it evenly. And that to me is a fascinating reality that is rarely discussed in looking at those structures. I don't think it's ever been discussed in that way. I just know that that's what viewers perceived was the purpose of those rocks being cut that way.
2: I think the the closest thing that... That
0: modern engineering comes to that even approaches that is just in bridge design, so it doesn't the wind doesn't cause it to. Was it the the, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? Yeah, the, like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. And even then we still screw that up. And this is this was built. Well, oh, yeah, that's the example of the screw up, right? Built three thousand years <laughs> ago, right? Yeah. So 3000 years ago they figured that stuff out that the earth goes rocking and so therefore we've got to build walls that won't rock with it when that happens. And so just understanding that that is a requirement and then let's just go to the idea that a 60-ton or an 80-ton stone
2: is being quarried miles away.
1: Sometimes Hundreds of miles away and brought there. And remember, old archaeology says these people didn't have the wheel. These were savages, (laughs) right? They were not civilized. They did not have the wheel. So, how could they do that? Did they just uh, chop up trees and roll it on logs? Yeah. I, I mean, none of that passes the logic test when you understand what it is you're looking at from an engineering perspective. So then you have to be courageous enough to understand or to accept the fact that you just can't define it because if you're unwilling to accept the distinct possibility that something else was present that helped that happen. And that doesn't have to be a stretch for people. I mean, it's look at what you're looking at. Understand what you're looking at. And understand that when you're looking at it, it couldn't have been done by what you think that they had to do it with. That had to be something else. There had to be something else that comes there. The rocks literally look like they were cut by a laser. Now, I don't know that there's ever been any studies done or testing done to to understand exactly how they were cut. I mean, nobody's going to tear apart one of these ancient monuments to go, well, let's check the surface here but they look like given the tolerances and how you make one stone match like core and cavity. How do you make the core and the cavity of two stones fit together perfectly? I mean, to this day, that's a tool in die makers' plight is to work like that within those kinds of tolerances. But they're working like that in tolerances to make a core and cavity mold for a taillight. These are engineers <laughs> and craftsmen That are working and moving 60, 80, 40, 20 ton stones around. The other thing is to lift them up, to stabilize them, to position them, to cut them, all of those things to build these things, these fortresses, it would have taken hundreds of years. It would have taken hundreds of years and thousands of men. And they are built with different materials than you ever see in Egypt. And they are built with more precision than anything you see in Egypt. When you look at the pyramids in Egypt. Kufu and, and beyond, there is no comparison to this. And the materials here are harder, heavier. They did not have a river to transport this stuff up and down, in, And the elevation is extraordinarily difficult, just the terrain itself. I was sharing with you off of places like Oleantambo, which was another one of these structures just the terracing and the stone position and the terracing and the grain storage capabilities. And one part of Orientambo gets to a place where it just drops thousands of feet down to a river. And the thousands of feet down is where the quarry was for the stones that are building in some of these big parts of the wall that again, you're looking at, stones that are 10,000 pounds, you know, Mm -hmm. 10,000, 15,000 pound stones that are being brought up or in some of these places being built, you're looking at 80,000 pound stones that are 4,000 feet up from the quarry. And as you and I were talking and as the big engineering question again becomes, how do you move an 80,000 pound stone? Factoring in, right, the friction coefficient of dragging it up that much. How do you do that? How do you even build the anchors for block and tackle to be able to do that? How do you do it? And how much manpower would be required to make that happen? And if you had that manpower there, what would just the simple logistics requirements be to be able to do that? So let's say you calculate it, take 50,000 men to be capable of doing it. How do you feed them? How do you feed them and? Where do you house them? And Even if you don't house them, you still have to feed them and you have to deal with the waste and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's an enormous workforce to drag one stone 4,000 feet up and then jockey it into position and then drag another one right behind it and make them both fit so closely together again that you cannot stick a knife point between them. It it boggles the mind. And if you're willing to understand the skills required to do something like that, it's easy to understand that to do something like that Mm -hmm. there had to be some kind of help to do it. And what would that help you? I don't know. It could be what viewers come up with to answer this question that nobody else really wants to answer, particularly in academia. Is that there were alien influences, otherworldly influences? Maybe that's a better term, right? That there were uh, species that were here to seed humanity into this part of the world, perhaps, and to teach humanity, maybe wrongly, maybe exceeding their own authority to do something like that, maybe thinking they were doing a great thing by teaching and empowering elements of humanity to be capable of seeing and understanding, knowing how to work that way, or seeing it work that way. But to move a stone like that would require some extraordinary intelligence and learning and knowledge of something. And as we were talking about, so often in the timeline of humanity, every time some great knowledge comes, it's always followed by some corruption. It's followed by some manipulation of that power, that knowledge. They turn the knowledge into power and they use the power to dominate others. And it just keeps going. And it's like, it it seems to be a part of just the human condition that we can't stop Mm -hmm. ourselves from doing it. And when people ask the question of, well, why are these civilizations no longer here? Because They rotted themselves away, right? You only get to a point where you can only kill and consume and dominate and control so much. And pretty soon you're all alone. And also maybe having that kind of knowledge and using it in the wrong way corrupts one so badly that the species just doesn't survive. Only fragments of it does. And they speak Quechua, you know, up in the mountains somewhere. But... Hmm it wasn't plague brought on by the spaniards and they weren't killed off by the spanish other things happened they tried to conquer each other they did good things with this and they did bad things with it and it's like everything within humanity how it unfolds it all depends it all depends and We've just seen too much evidence of it happening and unfolding precisely in that way that I don't know. I, I don't know if those outside influences, otherworldly influences, when they saw what they had done and realized that they had struck a match and powder keg and they can't stop it now, probably just backed off. I mean, what would make it worse to come in and correct it through force, <laughs> to stop it yourself, stop what you created. I think there was probably a pullback and not going to do that again. But you look at this magical place and you can sense just the vibration and the spirit and the connection there with so many things. I mean, like at Machu Picchu, that was an amazing place. And when we were with Jorge, It was double amazing because he took us in at night. You can probably find a tour guide that would take you in, but he was a shaman and a well-respected, well-renowned and known shaman in Peru. And so he carried a lot of clout with him. So when he brought us in there, it was pretty amazing. There was nobody else roaming around there that I recall but us. And he took us to each one of the places and performed these ceremonies, talked about these ceremonies and performed these ceremonies with all the viewers there. And they were powerful moving ceremonies. And during these ceremonies or shortly after them, when we would give viewers some time to contemplate what they had done and what they had sensed and what they were perceiving in this area. I mean, so many of the viewers were so connected at this point that they were seeing things outside the physical realm moving, right? Moving through the corridors and across the patios of Machu Picchu. And others had awarenesses of carvings that were across from Machu Picchu, not on Picchu, but across you know, carvings, like, like they could see the puma that was on the wall, it, massive, a 1,000 feet high and 500 feet wide, uh, carved across from Machu Picchu. They could see it in their mind's eye. The next day, in the daylight, if you could capture the outline, if you got it, if you saw it the night before, if you sensed it, I should say, if you perceived it, it was easy to make the connection. Like, oh, yeah, I see it now. If not, then you had to struggle against your conscious mind trying to paint a completely different picture for you. But Mm -hmm. people I really trust and believe in that were saying that they had seen spirit beings moving in and around us while we were doing these ceremonies. So there is a great deal of that. There's a great deal of, and I want to mix influences there. I, I, I just want to say that There's a reason why otherworldly influences were drawn to this area. And there's a reason why the ancient peoples of this area built and lived where they did. And there was an interaction between the two. And somewhere in between all of that, there are layers of dimensions in which when your eyes are cast the right way, and you are open and sensing and feeling in the right way, you can see between worlds in this place. And that's what makes it so magical when you're there. Truly, it it is. It is unbelievably juxtaposed to everything you will have ever read or heard about it in terms of what old archaeologists paint as the picture of this place. It is nothing like that. And I would say that's a place to go and things to see and experience. If you're just going to go as a tourist, but if you're a remote viewer, it's a place to go and spend some serious time. Because it is a connection with things beyond the physical that you will have to hunt far and wide to find in such high density concentration as you find there. And evidence of otherworldly influences, because what has been done there defies the capabilities of human engineering, even today. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to be a sheer buffoon to to continue (laughs) to ignore that something else had to happen there to make this structure happen. And Throughout the millennia that those places have been there, that they have been created, then abandoned and swallowed up, and then rediscovered, and then abandoned and swallowed up again, it's amazing to see how the earth just can make us as a species disappear. It doesn't take a long time. And this is a place where you can witness trial and error. You can see, you can see where things started and stopped and started again and stopped and started again. And you can see it from the physical analysis of it. And you can definitely feel it when you can see between worlds, the physical and the non-physical is you're going to see elements of that there. And like going back to the doorway, you know, that I said, where they're kneeling in the doorway and You allow the stone before you to become translucent. The veil is open and you feel like you were turned around in the doorway when your eyes were closed. And now you're looking out back into the physical dimension in which you're standing. It's a very strange sensation, that whole place. Yeah, I would like to go back someday. It'd be a lot of fun. And also, I wanted to just throw this part in that one of my students brought her husband. He's like an agricultural engineer. He's been trained at university level to calculate storage needs and Mm -hmm. storage capacities and how much it takes to feed certain populations, how much it takes to grow, harvest, store, et cetera. And every site that we would go to, the tourist brochures are fed by in part by academia that says, oh yes, we've studied this place and this is what it was and here's how many people were here. And it's also fed a little bit with some interpretation, free license from the lore <laughs> and the philosophies of the local people. So we would come to a place and they would tell us that, well, this was a place where 10,000 people lived. And he would break out his calculator and do, start running his numbers. And he would go, well, based on a terrace land available, and based on the storage capacities that I can see right here, and he goes, and I measured them, he, I would, go, he would go measure them, measure the inside of them, the, et cetera, and he would know how many tons it could hold and how many tons they could raise and harvest and replant to get maximum use out of the seasons. And he would go, nah, there are ten 10,000 people at this place. You could have never had more than 5,000 people here. I really love having that kind of smarts around me, you know? And then we go to another place back to like talking about what the force is required to move 80 ton stones. And they would say, well, this is a place where there were like 15,000. And he would run the numbers again and come back and go, yeah, this place could sustain 50,000 people. (laughs) So you're (laughs) like, okay, workforce accounted for. But it's just funny how we just refuse to accept the fact that if we're not going to put all the tools on the table to understand what this place is, why it was, where it came from, why it's not there now. If we don't put all the tools on the table and use them, which includes remote viewing and science and engineering and agricultural engineering, if you don't put that kind of stuff in there, you're never going to know the the true picture. You're, You're just never going to know it. You're just going to keep speculating and speculating. I'm disappointed that we're so complacent with the speculation. I'm disappointed we're so complacent with academic speculation. That's the worst part of it, right? We have people who make this their living. Mm -hmm. and They're not digging deep enough, and they're not willing to accept that all these other contributors can give them pieces of the puzzle that'll make their analysis of that era, that piece of human time, that stamp, far more accurate than it is right now and ultimately far more defensible. But it was an amazing time. It was an amazing experience. And it was wonderful to see the kind of the transformation that happened to the viewers who participated and even greater for me to see the light come on and in the shaman jorge ruiz delgado's in his eyes and the smile come across his face because he realized for the first time that he didn't have to walk this life telling the versions that had been handed down to him without interpretations of very intelligent people in numbers that statistically were relevant, telling the story that connected the dots and things that he knew, he thought he knew, or that we were never supposed to know. That was an amazing part of the experience.
0: Did any of these entities that people sensed tried to
2: communicate with any of the remote viewers? Some
1: said yes. Yes some said no that tends to be the way it is often and i think that when those things manifest like when a particular viewer is cited that way in that moment that it's a unique and individual exchange it's not an exchange by accident in my opinion it's not an exchange that's being driven by something it's usually an exchange as a gift in some way. <laughs> that gift could be make of this what your heart tells you you should make of this. Sometimes the message could be more overt, I've found. And sometimes there is indifference from what you're seeing. Kind of like, it's wonderful they're allowing you to see this. And
2: we're happy you're here with your eyes open. But our purpose here is not with you. Right?
1: Our purpose here is not to interact with you. We're happy you see us. Go on. (laughs) Go your way. (laughs) You know, do what you're supposed to do. So I think the, the message or the lesson learned is for you to understand how powerful you are that if your heart, your intention, your mind, your eyes are set in a certain way to be open to certain things, you're going to witness things that Mm -hmm. others won't. They won't because they don't care or they doubt or they just can't get all of those things right to be able to let something like that happen. And other people live their lives really on purpose following their calling in love on in, with their intention open to those kinds of things. And so they kind of attract it I found there. It's like it comes to them more so than it comes to others. Anybody can get to that place, but it takes work to get to that place. It's a level of mastery, I think, to get to that place. But the the messages can be just throughout my time and hearing about it and from viewers. It, it, it can be everything along that spectrum. I mean, I know there are some messages that come that are deliberate and the viewer feels that it's for them. Others are just, as I said, the interaction is very clear, whether it's telepathic or not. It's just, yeah, we're very happy that your heart
2: and your eyes are open and you can see us, but.
1: <laughs> now go your way, go eat a peanut butter sandwich or something. Cause we're done. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, you're we're there. We have nothing for you. You know, you're not supposed to be here yet. I mean, it's not like you're not supposed to be here. It's that. Ex- you're not supposed to be here to expect some sort of interaction or exchange because it's not going to happen. We're doing something else. I keep thinking, like, as I think as we progress spiritually as beings and we get further along that line, Mm -hmm. we develop this ability to maybe look backwards and to recognize what was behind us or callings and reaching out from behind us. I think that kind of is my sense of that. Each level forward is moving based on experience, right? On, On educating Loving, experiencing, doing, in the physical and the non-physical that pushes you through that next layer of the veil into something that you discover at that moment, what that is. And it I think there comes a point where you've lived long enough and pressed through enough layers through the living that there is a time where you're able to look backward and see when there is a connection, when there's somebody reaching out back there. Does that make sense? That's been one of my interpretations of that, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that because again, that's not my place. I'm really about being in the moment, but Hey, we've been talking about Peru. We've been talking about otherworldly influences. We've been talking about layers of dimensions and portals and vortices and structures built by humans with Non human interaction. It's just an amazing place. Rethinking about it, even though it was 20 years ago now, it just brings up lots of emotions with me. Yeah, you know, it's a fun trip and really purposeful for remote viewing.
0: Did you get a sense of what sort of civilizational influences the people of these cities may have had or remote viewers reporting? Like a common theme?
2: There's an island. It's flat-top island.
1: And it's on
2: Lake Yumayo.
1: And it's just a big flat-top island out in the middle of this lake. And it's, it's hugely symmetrical. I mean, amazingly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the island's right out there. And then the lake around it. And it's steeped down. And there are all sorts of structures that are up on the top where these structures around it, they're not done with precision stonework, but they're built and they're round and they're hollow in the inside. And viewers that were viewing those were sensing in those and around them, you know, crawling around them going through in places where you could go through just being around in the area again, sensing were talking and sharing with the whole group that these were energy sources from something coming up from the ground that was feeding something, whether it was craft would come recharge and then move the whole flat top Island, the sketches that came back from that, had bridges, structural bridge drawn from the main land, a structural bridge drawn out to that flat top island. And on the flat top island, where it was like some sort of a landing base. They had drawn sketches of buildings there and a port of some kind. Not like fixed-wing landing like we would think now, but. Something vertical, something to come over and vertically drop down and land there. It was, again, it was the influences that were there were everything from bases being built to structures of different kinds of materials. And I don't think that when you're looking at the structures and thinking like some sort of a bridge, there would be a good mile long bridge. That was being sketched by viewers from the mainland to that island. If it had been made by some sort of alien metal or alloy or something, it would still be there. It had to have been, and it had to have been carefully decided to what we're going to do to help and influence here. We're going to do with materials that when we leave here, will just be seen as part of this, as part of this place, right? So it gave them
2: a small trail of their footprint.
1: I still haven't figured out in my head whether they were doing what they were doing because they thought it was a good thing to do, or they were doing what they were doing because there was some payoff, or they were doing what they were doing because they just were being defiant Or they were doing what they were doing because they genuinely thought they were making a difference in some way. I mean, who knows, right? Could you find that out? I guess, yeah, you could certainly work work the problem as remote viewers and get to the point where you come up with some conclusions about that. But I don't know at this point. But I just know that it was really carefully crafted. It was carefully crafted as an intervention to present this knowledge. And there are small but very loud speaking evidences of those influences. But at the same time, there are are really, really carefully planned ways in which those influences are not attributable in any way to something foreign in that way. A bridge over a mile long to a flat top island, which was described as a base that doesn't exist. You can't find it. There's no evidence of it. I asked Jorge, have divers been down, looked around? He goes, no. But, you know, there's just never been any evidence of something like that. If there was some sort of metallic structure or alloyed structure, right? I don't care what they made it out of, stabilized ice. (laughs) It doesn't matter. There would have been some sort of evidence at anchor points or something else would have endured three millennia, something would have been
2: there. But it's still also a
1: land that has tremendous exploration yet to occur. I'd really like to get a team of viewers to go, not necessarily there to do the work, but to go to a place where we can control the environment and do some really good viewing sessions on it. And I would love to have a team of shamans Like say, Jorge, go get 10 friends and we'll pull a team of shaman together and we'll come up with, okay, what do you know? What do you think you know? What do you really want to know about this place? Or give us the top three places that you want 70 viewers or hundred viewers to dig into. Give us the top 10 and then we'll structure it and do it that way. See what people come up with. We get really quality sketches then and you get stuff that comes in the blind Right? Not front loaded. Like, as I said in the first episode, you mean, we were front loaded when we went out there to do that, but there was no other way to do it. There was just no other way to do it. You couldn't go back to the hotel and then gin up three targets and have viewers do it and then go out the next day and go, well, here, now we're walking on the ground that was target number one. It just made more sense to do it the way we did. And I think that the viewers had a better experience with it. Because it was free flow. You got to go out as well-trained viewers and truly mm-hmm. just sink into each one of these sites. And again, it it was never what was in the brochure that came back. I mean, never was it that nobody ever came back and said, Oh, you know, well, this was just a festival of the sun place. You know, I'm sensing carnival and corn and kids and It was never that kind of thing, which was interesting to me, right? It was powerful. It was powerful juxtaposed to the archaeological perspective on that that's been carried over in academia for hundreds of years of those
2: places. Well, my friend, as always,
0: it was a fascinating
1: trip. It was fun to talk
0: about it again.
1: Thanks for having me, Sean. Thanks to all your listeners. Yeah. I mean there'll be there'll
0: be many more, especially right before you do that history channel show.
1: Yeah. We'll get yeah, together yeah. right before that. Absolutely. We'll get together. All right. Tell all. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Thank you again. All right, brother.
0: If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.
2: Peace. Oh.